welcome back to Millennials for All. Today, we're recording part three of our series, Systemic Racism Explained. And um, I'm really excited for this episode. So um, this is Hera. This is Shakira. This is Nick. This is Jessica. This is Gabby. I'll hand it off to Shakira to introduce today's topic. So today we're looking at structural and systemic racism in the education system. And I'm just going to give a brief history of how racism has been interwoven since the very beginning of our education system. So in the 1800s, the Supreme Court ruled in Plessy versus Ferguson that separate but equal schools were legal, meaning that schools could be segregated as long as they had were getting the same resources. But as we know, that wasn't happening. And that schools that were just for minorities, Black people, people of color, had way less resources. But then in the 1950s, with Brown versus Board of Education, Plessy versus Ferguson was overturned and separate but equal schools were ruled unconstitutional because, like we said, they were not getting the same resources. With the integration of schools, even even that was fraught with controversy with Little Rock Nine and wealthier white families were unhappy with schools being integrated. Until this very day, schools are very segregated based on what neighborhood you live in, how much resources your or taxes your neighborhood brings in. So that's just a brief overview of the history of racism in the schools. And so I wanted to open up with a more personal question. What has your experience been navigating the school system at any level? And when was the first time you had a teacher of color? I guess my experience in navigating the school system has been pretty interesting, uh, especially growing up in Washington, D.C. You were expected to attend your neighborhood schools um, that were within your living zone, if that makes sense, or within your ward. For me, a lot of schools that were in my ward were not considered the best. Um, Some of them were good and some of them were terrible in terms of you know, the percentage of students who graduated, who were reading above certain levels or who matriculated without getting into trouble. So for me, we had to um, basically research the best schools. And then for top schools that I wanted to apply for when it came to junior high and high school, schools that I wanted to go to that had, you know, 100% graduation rate or, you know, 99% of students uh, matriculating and going to post-secondary options such as college or, vac- or vocational trade schools, you know, we had to do a lottery process. And so you had to fill out an application, you had to interview. So I would say my experience with the education system, you know, navigating from elementary to middle school to high school and then to college and grad school, it was pretty interesting. And I definitely had my teacher of color in pre-kindergarten. Thanks for that. I think I agree with that in terms of like trying to decide what schools to go to. I know for me, when I was a kid, we moved because my mom was always thinking about what the best public school district was. So like the first neighborhood I remember living in, my mom was already thinking about what that high school was like, looking at what the SAT scores were and what um, colleges those kids went like got into. And looking at all those statistics back from when I was like a very little kid because she wanted to make sure we were in the right school district and thinking about like what money was going into 
the school we were currently attending. And so we moved into a better school district. And then in terms of having like the first teacher of color, I really had to think about it. Like I, my first teacher of color wasn't until middle school. Yeah, so I had like a pretty unique school process. Um, up until eighth grade, I attended like a private Islamic school. We lived like 30, 35 minutes away from it. So my parents like dropped us off and picked us up every day. But the school was very underfunded because most of the kids at the school were from more underserved communities. And so not that many folks, there weren't that many kids like me who were like actually paying the tuition to go to the school. And that's like basically the only money that the school got. It was like donations and tuition. And so I like grew up having a lot of teachers of color and like a lot of classmates of color. But because of the lack of resources at the school, um, there was always like change of administration, inner drama between like administration and teachers. Because the school couldn't afford proper like teacher salaries, a lot of the teachers were like uncertified. Teachers would leave and come. So it was like a very unstructured, a little bit chaotic time. And so at when high school came around, my parents were like, okay, we're going to take our kids out and put them in public school because they felt like we wouldn't have as many resources and opportunities at this smaller private school. Ninth grade high school was my first time I went to a public school. So it was a very drastic change. My high school was big, so we had a decent number of people of color, but still it was majority white and like almost all my teachers were white. I'm trying to think of a teacher I had in high school that was a person of color and I can't think of one. In my head, I thought, oh, all public high schools must be like this. Like this is pretty lit. But I like quickly realized that the reason that we were in a high school that was so great was because of where we were living and that's like the sole purpose of why my parents even tried to move to this you know area and neighborhood like talking to my friends who were going to other high schools and stuff I realized that oh not all high schools are like this and not all high schools have all these resources so for me I've gone to private school all my life. So I'm originally from New Orleans. And I mean, the public school system there is not great. At least when I was growing up, like, recently, they've changed to be predominantly charter school. So meaning like, they're run by like more private organizations than the state. So there's some schools that are, you know, they've done a lot better. But like, when I was growing up, it, it was just kind of known, like, Public school is like the last resort type of a thing. It's like no one really wants to do that, but it's if you have no other means, and you know that's what happens. So um, my parent, and also my parents are originally from Honduras, so their knowledge of the school system, I or like what to do, kind of stopped at high school. My navigation was like pretty self-monitored starting, yeah, starting like freshman year of high school. My first teacher of color, 
I mean, <laughs> it's funny because like, do you count your Spanish, your your Spanish teachers, elementary and middle school, and if that question? question. <laughs> if you count them, then like that's then then. <laughs> um, but if not, then in middle school we did have a black teacher come in to teach music class, and that would be that was my first experience with a black teacher or a teacher of color. I don't know what we're saying anymore. <laughs> BIPOC, that's what it is. I like the term BIPOC, though. It's very, although it took me a long time to figure out how it was said. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, what does it stand for? <laughs> Black Indigenous People of Color. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's all-encompassing. Mm-hmm. Because, like, so essentially, like, People of color is just kind of a way to wash out like black people too is what the argument is, I believe. So yeah. and indigenous folks. So the by adding the B I it like is more clear. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think mm-hmm. yeah, because like before just saying POC doesn't didn't like particularly address the unique black relationship yeah. that black and indigenous people have in America with the right. white people in power. So it's like highlighting that and being like, hey, remember that <laughs> these particular groups have a really yeah. deep and like terrible history with white people. So don't forget them. Why is it so important to have BIPOC teachers within the system or for young students to see teachers that look like them? And why do we think that's not happening? I think it's important for students to be able to relate to who's teaching them. I believe that... Some research indicates that students of color tend to respond more favorably to teachers of color that they can actually relate to, that might understand where they're coming from. And I think that the reason why there's not more of these types of situations where there are teachers of color and students of color is because a lot of the time teachers of color are forced into, I guess, schools that are underfunded and under-resourced, which kind of in turn... (laughs) makes them leave the school sometimes. And I don't know, I, I just think it gets at like an issue where it's like, while we understand that it's beneficial to have teachers of color be with students of color, sometimes it's putting a lot of burden on those teachers to, I guess, go to these areas that are pre-exist- like have a pre-existing history with being underfunded, under-resourced, and then expecting these teachers of color to fix everything about the systemic okay. issues within that school district. And it mm-hmm. kind of perpetuates an issue where, I guess, teachers of color are not as supported and are unable to, I guess, reach the students of color that really need them. Yeah. I think that makes me think of, like, the equitable funding and how we pigeonhole teachers and then these teachers become, like, overworked and then they burn out really early. And also, like, teachers are not paid well, right? Just even thinking about my friends, uh, my BIPOC friends, like, I don't know any of them. I know maybe one who went into teaching, knowing the reputation of how the system treats teachers and already having to struggle to get to where they're at now. Like, teaching doesn't seem very appealing. Yeah, I, I agree with that based on what I've seen personally and um, you know, what I've actually read about, too. I think it it kind of sometimes paints like a bad picture of teachers of color too. Like people might say yeah. something like they're not as effective, but I think in reality, like it's exactly that issue that they're being, you know, they just don't aren't given the same kinds of resources that are needed. Um, they right. aren't given the same opportunities that should be given to them. 
within the teaching world and teachers in general aren't given <laughs> you know what they deserve in terms yeah of in general pay. yeah yeah so yeah. It's, it's very challenging for sure so I was gonna say you I mean you have to look at you know how teachers are coming you know out of college and you know they're getting into programs that are supporting them to get into schools and to start you know the line of work and you know They'll have, you know, like Teach for America or, um, I mean, there's other programs that I can't think of right now, but you have to think of like where teachers are being placed when they, you know, you know when they're working for those programs and what type of system they have to deal with or be placed into, whether the school is underserved or it's underfunded. And then, you know, teachers are coming out of their own pocket because they're, you know, they have to pay for certain resources to support the school and then if you think about it you know teachers always with the teacher union they are speaking about you know teachers being underpaid and you know there's just a lot that unpacks when it comes to teaching yeah I could go off on a whole tangent about teach for America, uh-huh. but I won't. <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot to be said about that. In general is very flawed and very underfunded but the public school education system is always one of the first funding budgets that is on the chopping block that's usually yeah we don't see as many um resources going into public education system but when you think about when those cuts are happening the communities they affect the most are the schools that are already underfunded and due to segregation and how our school systems are designed by zip code are Schools that are predominantly black and people of color are the schools that are affected the most. But I was also thinking about like my experience of not having many teachers of color when I was younger, but also thinking about what honors classes looked like when you think of who was like we had 18 classes and the honors classes, it's usually one or two black people. Like for Mm me, I was one or two black women and we were constantly mixed up. Like our teacher would just call us by the same name all the time even though we were nothing alike and so I think part of that would have been offset by having more teachers of color but also Mm -hmm. better um, cultural competency for these non-teachers of color yeah I was gonna say I feel like and you guys might be able to relate to like I feel like most of my time especially in high school when I entered into the public school realm so much time was spent for me like correcting my name pronunciation and like explaining why I was gonna miss a day of school because of like an Eid celebration and like trying to explain all these like cultural aspects or like if I was fasting like all these things because my white teachers just like didn't know or like they knew very little and I was very I felt very tokenized in high school for sure by teachers. Like I just kind of accepted that as like, oh, this is just what I have to do. Looking back, I'm just like, man, I, I wish I was like more aware of how like realized how that wasn't okay and maybe could have said something different. I noticed that not only did I almost I'm pretty sure I've almost never I can't remember really within, you know, elementary, middle, high school ever having a teacher of color. And in high school, I took like a ton of AP honors class type, you know, things. 
Um, and I, I, there are very few non-white, non-Asian people, you know, people of color in my classes. And yeah, it's not something I really ever like, internalized until college. You know, I didn't think that was that was off. But there is, for some reason, a lower participation of people of color in within, you know, these types of classes. Even though the school that I attended, which was a public school, was I think it was a pretty hefty majority, um, you know, people of color attended that school. I think maybe a little bit over half, if I remember correctly. And yet, here I am, <laughs> you know, here, here, there I was inside, I guess, this so-called AP bubble. That's what my friends like to call it, like the AP bubble, where we, we hardly ever interacted with those people at our school. And I thought that was really interesting. It also makes you think how are those decisions determined? Like who just, who's deciding who gets to be in those honors and AP classes? Yeah. Switching gears in terms of, Subject, since we're talking about the college level, I wanted to get everyone's thoughts on affirmative action and experiences going into college. Like, and just for a little background information, affirmative action is a policy, I forget when it was implemented, but it's basically used to um, how do we level the playing field so that people of color and minorities, Black people, how do we make sure they're having the same opportunities to get into schools? Mm-hmm. And so trying to combat the discrimination, discriminatory policies that were in place in the past. And so what are your thoughts on affirmative action? Because there's a lot of arguments today that say affirmative action is quote unquote reverse racism. Well, I just want to say reverse racism is not real. I'm going to say it. <laughs> We know it's not a real thing, but people really do feel like there is such thing as reverse racism and that affirmative action is that example. It depends on how it's being done. So like I've been on selection committees for, for scholarships at GW and like the way that it is approached is we, we take like it's blinded up until the very end, pretty much. Um, Like you don't know, who this candidate is, like you don't know if it's a male or a woman, you don't know if it's a man or a woman, you don't know what race they are until the very end, because at the end of the day, it's like, it's a like two people who are up against each other or something, right? They have this same resume. They have the same qualifications. And then it comes down to like, who are we going to give it to? And then we find out more about like who the candidate is. And like, we do in person interviews. And yeah, I mean, we would choose like the person of color over the white person. It's a pre- like a, I don't know. I mean, preferential system in a way that benefits Black Indigenous people of color <laughs> because both in in history they weren't afforded the same like review process. So yeah, I mean, it's not yeah. reverse racism. It, like it's a way to make up for what has the been past. Yeah. Yeah. But with affirmative action, right, like it only addresses bringing in these populations and these people. It doesn't actually address the experience that they have on these colleges, on these universities. Exactly. It's very problematic. Like so many people are set up for failure at these colleges because they haven't set it up to to address like maybe what these students need in terms of their learning environment and their, and what to, they need to support them. GW is notorious for that. With They have this scholarship that brings in DC residents, DC students, 
and they had the biggest problem with retaining those students. Those students dropped out because they didn't have the support that they needed to succeed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, affirmative action, like I think, is one step. Like in a way, I'm like, yes, we need it. I was just gonna say that we like, and in a way, I'm just like, but it's it's just, we need more, <laughs> yeah, we need more, <laughs> more than just affirmative. It can't action. just be like. As, as you know something to balance your stats out like exactly right i mean yeah. action is just the start i feel <laughs> like it's necessary because there are a lot of practices in place that keep students of color and black students and minority students out of schools that's why we have the term pwi predominantly white institution affirmative action is just one step and then you mm-hmm. look into what happens when these kids who went to under-resourced schools are now in colleges. How are we supporting them? Because we're not. A lot of kids end up leaving either because they can't afford to continue in these schools or what we do a lot of the times is that students of color go in on athletic scholarships. We only want them for their body, like what they can do for the school, and we're not supporting them and their education. Yeah, exactly. I, yeah, I agree. I was just going to say, and I, with Gabby, oh my gosh, like you just hit on it. Like, yes, affirmative action, it corrects, you know, what was happening. You know, it kind of corrects, you know, the racial discrimination that's been happening, but, you know, it's not enough because, okay, mm-hmm. when I was working with high school seniors, you know, trying to help them with their college application and to getting into schools, like they were saying that the issue is beyond that. It's not just for them to get into schools, but it's for them to stay in college and to successfully graduate. And the issue that we had with students who went to these universities that could have been predominantly white or could have been even HBCUs, which is historical Black uh, colleges, but, you know, whatever the institution was, the issue was that they did not have the mentors or the the guidance or the ability or even the knowledge of how to navigate the available resources that were there at those mm-hmm. institutions. And because they were away from home, they weren't supported. They they didn't know, you know, where this or that was. And it was just like you dropped out, you know, because of because of something that it could have been prevented had That's you had a whole a whole village behind you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I feel like imposter syndrome is a real thing, especially for students of color and black students. Also going back to like the people who say like you only got into it because you're black. Literally, it's one part of the holistic system of how to accept a student. Sorry that you were a mediocre white student. <laughs> <laughs> At the end of- and if you think about it, even if we do get recruited through a, a diversity and inclusion recruitment initiative or whatever, half the time we may get accepted, but we may not want to go because we don't feel comfortable. You get there and the whole school or is like, you know, we want you to come, we want you to come. And then you're you're dealing with these, you know, different little issues that you're noticing even while you're touring the college. And you're like, no, this is not going to be for me. Yeah. Because it wasn't made for you. Yeah. And I think a lot of that speaks to all the different components that go into education system and how we get more BIPOC students into higher education because the system is so flawed and set up for non set up for wealthy white students and there's a lot of different factors. There's so many barriers. 
Mm -hmm. that are just interwoven throughout and that it'll take a real policy change. You know, if you're growing up as a low income, a low income individual in a low income household and, you know, depending upon if you have, you know, whether you have a two parent household or a single parent household, it comes from, you know, not only like what the schools are teaching you, but what your how you know, your parents are teaching you at home. And then you're taking that into the schools. And then when it comes to discipline, you know, is the discipline the same within your household versus the school? And if there is a difference, then there's going to be a difference between how teachers interact with you, between, you know, how your parents interact with you, and then how the school police officers or detention leaders interact with you. And so that's where a lot of problems or issues come with in terms of young students, especially like from what I witnessed growing up, is this is where, you know, the complication came between African-American students and those people in those roles, because it, it's how you approach that student, it's how you talk to them. And then in terms of the discipline, how far did you take that action that they did incorrectly and turn it into a wrong. I mean, just turn it into something bigger than what it was. When it could have been this child is sleeping in class because they did not have breakfast and here they are, they are hungry and they depend on, you know, the meals that are given at school and they can't focus. So they're taking a nap in class and then you call this the school discipline leader or the police officer to come and escort that student out if they don't want to leave because they don't feel like they've done anything wrong. And then you're literally just building them up to not have any trust in any of those individuals that should be set up to help them, not to break them down or to beat them or to, you know, speak negativity into their lives saying that they're not going to be anything or become anyone. And so... I mean, that's just like a whole nother topic of how, you know, that starts. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, this was, <laughs> thank you, Shakira, for leading us in this conversation. It was really reflective. Is that my turn? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how to close, but I feel like that's never like over because there's so much you can say. There's still so, so much, yeah. <laughs> there's still so much we didn't even get to touch on, but this is really okay. informative and we will try to um, link some resources um, in the description of the podcast so you can kind of read up on things and. Uh, yeah, follow us on Instagram at Millennials for All. And yeah, until next time. Thanks, guys. It was nice talking to you all. Thank you. And thank Bye. you.